Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show. Let me welcome to the Madison Show Dr. Terry Ann Scott, who is chair of the Department of History at uh, Hood College in Maryland. And uh, I really, really, along with many other titles, she is also associate editor for the Journal of Sports History and We the People, public scholar fellow for Common Power. And I so thank you for being on. And one who uh, has been pushing the anti-lynching bill uh, and trying to get it through uh, Congress when I saw the title of the uh, of your book, Lynching and Leisure, uh, it caught my attention, and I told the uh, producers, "Let's get Doctor, let's get Doctor Scott on as soon as possible." So, thank you so much for responding. What is the premise of the book, and why the title, <laughs> Lynching and Leisure? Right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. I very much appreciate it. Um, And I appreciate you uh, asking about that and what the premise is. It is certainly eye-catching, and not by my own doing, but by the doing of the history, the grim history in this country. And so what I set out to do is two things. It is a comprehensive look at lynching in the state of Texas. There have been some done on the state of Texas, but often just on individual lynchings. And so through my research, I found that previous to what we had previously known, thinking that there were far fewer lynchings, there were about 750 lynchings in the state of Texas, the vast majority of whom were African-American. So I set out to see not only why lynching became racialized, because in the, after the Civil War, most of the people who were lynched were white until the late 19th century, and then that shifts to black people, when the vast majority were black. And also why lynching went from this kind of quiet violence, where somebody would find somebody in the morning, they had been lynched by mass individuals, to the type of spectacle and recreation lynching where black bodies were completely devalued, where they were collected as souvenirs very frequently, and where unmasked people, sometimes numbering in the thousands, would lynch black people in the middle of the day. Would this be women and children also? When you say leisure, um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, would, would parents bring their children to these lynchings? They definitely would. Schools would often be um, closed down during the lynchings, and so parents would have the option to take their children, and they did frequently take them. And I actually point to a number of comments in my book where people said, well, I'm taking my children to teach them what to do in society, to teach them how to be. And not only would they take them to the actual lynching, I have an entire chapter just on the touring of lynching sites. And so after a person was uh, hanged or burned because Texas was notorious for burning its lynching victims, then families would pile into their car or take an excursion train and go view the lynching site after. And 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 uh, the the would these be uh, after a trial? Would there ever would, would there be a trial, uh, or would this be just mob violence? 
So occasionally there was a trial, and that, that's an excellent question. I opened the book with the lynching of Jesse Washington, which is one of the better known lynchings. In the movie Black Klansman, actually, they talked a bit about the lynching of Jesse Washington. He had a trial, but it was a farcical trial. The jury deliberated for four minutes. The defense attorney for him never called any witnesses. He didn't seem to have the mental capacity to stand trial. And so as soon as they said guilty, um, then a mob grabbed the young man. Police officers watched this happen. They were all armed and did nothing to stop it, and then dragged him down the steps of the courthouse and to City Hall, where the mayor watched the young man get lynched, he was a teenager, and burned. And so he had a trial, but it was a farcical trial. Most often, they did not have a trial. It was out without due process. And so the mob itself, the white citizens, acted as the jurors. And so they would take people from a jail cell or take people from their homes and lynch them. And often in the face of zero to uh, little evidence. And if somebody wasn't available, for instance, whom they had gone to get, then they may opt instead to take a family member. Whoa. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, Dr. Terry Ann Scott is, is with us. Her, her book is Lynching and Leisure, Race and the Transformation of Mob Violence in Texas. Uh, and, and again, let me ask, why Texas as opposed to another state? Right. Well, a couple of reasons. I got my master's degree in Texas before I went to Chicago for my doctorate. And while I was there, I was working on a public history project that some people who actually, some of your listeners from Texas may be familiar with. It was when they expanded Central Expressway and it interrupted an African-American cemetery. And a number of the people were removed from there. And so they hired an environmental firm, and I was a historian for that firm, to write the history of African-Americans in Dallas. And it was while I was there at the Dallas Public Library that a picture had just arrived for their collections. And so the um, archivist showed it to me. And it was a picture of John Henderson, who was a black man who was burned to death in Corsicana, Texas, in 1901. And I was so taken aback by the fact that people in the picture were looking at the camera. They were unmasked. After I investigated, nobody had ever been arrested for the death of Henderson, even though they essentially sent pieces of the lynching scene to the governor and mocked him and said, come and get us. And several citizens signed it and said, we're the ones who lynched him. Nobody was ever arrested. Nobody was ever convicted. Mm -hmm. And so I set out to understand how that came to be, how it came to be that people could lynch black people without any fear of retribution and how they could find enjoyment in the act. And so my hope is that by investigating Texas and by demonstrating the different social and political and economic currents that fed into this kind of devaluation of black lives, then other scholars can use this as a model to further investigate lynching and leisure in different states. Now, did I understand, Dr. Scott, you, uh, that you, you, you pointed out earlier that, 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 that most of the lynching prior to the Civil War were white people, and after the Civil War, black people so. What, who, who are the folks being lynched and why were they being lynched, white people, prior to the Civil War? And, what, and, and, and we could, I'm certain you get into detail about black folks. Right. <laughs> it's shifting to black people after the Civil War. Right. There's all, go ahead, right. please. That's a great question. And so we have about the lynching of about 10 black people in the state of Texas or so 
previous to the Civil War, um, with the exception of kind of a mass lynching that occurred once when there was a word of a potential slave insurrection. And so even within the several years after the Civil War, it remained white people who were by and large lynched for things very popularly like horse theft or cattle theft. That was a very prominent um, offense of white people, right. And so you have a shift after the Civil War, because what do you no longer have after the Civil War? You no longer have bondage. You no longer have slavery that firmly dictates black is on the bottom and white is on top. Lynching becomes a form of social control in the absence of slavery. And not only that, blackness becomes criminalized. Because when you look at many of the crimes that are committed by black people that are listed, and these are not crimes, the ones that they are accused of, there are things such as speaking ill of a white family, attempting to vote, attempting to organize to immigrate out of the United States. And so everyday acts, and that's kind of the historical continuum that I see today, when you see a young black boy, for instance, in Manhattan last year, who was accused of stealing a cell phone and the woman tackled him, his blackness made him a criminal, even though he was innocent of that thing. We see the same thing in this historical period. And so the conflation of color and crime becomes that issue. So blackness indicates that you are a criminal, particularly when you do something that is, quote unquote, outside of your place. And so you when know, you don't uh, have slavery keeping you, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, what, 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 and as you were talking, what immediately came to my mind, the Central Park. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, it, it, it almost fits it, it, for, verbatim what you're talking about, the Central Park, even after they were acquitted. <laughs> you know, you had Donald Trump still calling for their execution. That's exactly uh, right. That's a perfect example. A, a, yeah. A really- Sickening and perfect example, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, let let me. As a historian, um, I, I assume that these lynchings that you write about in in the book, lynching and leisure, I assume they were documented. What in newspapers primarily? Yeah, I've spent a number of years. So I first started writing about this when I got to graduate school at the University of Chicago, and then it evolved into this book. And so I spent years um, doing archival research, newspapers. There are letters to the Department of Justice that I use from the National Archives, diaries from individuals. The NAACP was, uh, did expansive investigations of lynchings at the time. And so you have the firsthand accounts of investigators who would go into these cities to investigate these lynchings. Tuskegee Institute was another organization that invested, uh, investigated the, uh, the lynchings, as well as the Chicago Tribune. So I've used hundreds and hundreds of newspapers, uh, National Archives um, uh, documents, all sorts of archival material to piece this story together. Now, I, I assume this is not meant to be an academic book. I'm not trying. Uh, I'm not trying to take anything away from <laughs> academics, uh, but it, it, the, the what I'm saying the the uh, the reader, the my my listeners, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know what I'm trying to get to. Uh, this do, isn't yes. for okay classroom purposes. This is, this is for everybody. I, yeah. I, I went to great pains to make sure that not only would it adhere to uh, academic standards and the discipline of history, which is why it's produced by it's, it's published by an academic press, but that there was narrative, that there's storytelling so that anybody can pick this up 
and read this. And I made sure to have people from different backgrounds who are academics, who are not, to read copies of it to make sure that, yes, the storytelling in here appeals to people. And what you can learn about how in this nation black lives have been devalued and really kind of um, empower you to what are you going to do about it, um, that's what I thought to, to set out to do. So this is a book for everybody, no question. In the last two minutes, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up what I started with, and that was uh, this effort on, on the part of others and legislation that has been introduced, uh, by the way, passed in the House, stalled mm-hmm. in the Senate, uh, the uh, Emmett Till Anti-Lynching uh, Act. Um, I'd just like to get your your. your sense of that, your feelings? Uh, should this bill be passed? And and by the way, as you know, as a historian, how many attempts, over 200 attempts to get an anti-lynching bill passed? Uh, you're, I'll give you the last yeah. minute or so. Well, first, Mr. Madison, let me just say, for listeners who don't know, I know that you went to great pains to push uh, for the passage of this bill and to popularize the need for it. So thank you for that. Um, I was on my way to the Emmett Till to the grocery store where Emmett Till first encountered um, the woman when, who was kind of at the, at the center of this when word came that the bill had passed through the House of Congress. And so it was a jubilant motion, uh, 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 moment. And then to discover that a single senator, Senator Rand Paul, mm-hmm. has been the one who has held this up has really been disconcerting for him to say, well, I think that the, the definition is too broad that we don't want to implicate people in a potential lynching who are not a part of this lynching, despite the fact that it would have been, you have to have been, be engaged in a clear act of um, racial violence and a hate crime. And so that's the unfortunate part of this. So I urge people to write to his office, to call his office, to make their concern known. As you mentioned, 200 Over 200 anti-lynching bills have been presented to Congress over the course of about one and a quarter decades, and not a single ever passed both houses of Congress. And it was always Southern legislators who said they refused to pass this. Um, And now we have another in Rand Paul. Well, I want to encourage everyone to get a copy of the book. Uh, It is, again, the title is Lynching and Leisure. Man, if that doesn't catch your attention, race and the <laughs> transformation of mob violence in Texas. And uh, we'll make sure it gets up on our social media. And really, thank you so much, uh, uh, Dr. Scott, uh, for doing this, researching it, and uh, coming on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for recognizing the importance of understanding our history so we can move forward on a better path. We'll continue more with Madison, the Black Eagle, here on Sirius XM Urban View. You can listen to yours truly, Madison, the Black Eagle, live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.